Well, it's becoming almost impossible to find love in our country today. Whether it be newscasts or social media or what's going on in the streets, all of these give the overwhelming impression that we are a nation that is almost hopelessly and impossibly divided. So the question is, is there hope? And the answer is absolutely yes, but that answer is the one person that most of America has kicked out of the public square and says, thou shalt not mention him. Jesus Christ, the Savior and the King of Kings. Now what he did on earth 2,000 years ago is the, let me underline that, the good news that everyone must hear and see. However, sadly, most of the American church is too weak either in God's love and or the truth that's given by the Holy Spirit in order to be adequate witnesses of um, the good news of what Jesus is. Okay, So the church, I'll give the church some credit. It's doing a reasonably good job in talking about the faith that is necessary to have in uh, Jesus Christ in order to have new life and forgiveness. But unfortunately, it's rather weak in the living out of that, okay? In a life that is totally surrendered to him, that's like un-American, but that's what God is looking for. We need to totally surrender to him. And worse, worse, it does not demonstrate enough the sacrificial love, which is the new command that Jesus gave in the upper room as he was celebrating the last Passover with his disciples. And that last Passover pointed forward to the sacrament of communion, which is participation with Jesus in his sacrificial death for us. But unlike American church leaders, the Apostle Paul, who planted this church in Philippi, along with Silas and Luke, and you can read about it in Acts, he commanded his brothers to live their lives together while they are striving together for the good news of Jesus. Now, after he had commanded them to have the mind of Jesus Christ, that's earlier in the letter, Jesus Christ, who became humbly obedient to death on the cross, and then using Timothy and Epaphroditus and himself as examples of followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, who were willing to suffer for others, 
out of love, then the Apostle Paul goes on in this passage to wax poetic about his love for these saints, for these brothers in the church in Philippi. And then he goes on and commands them to stand firm in the Lord. And then he exhorts two specific women who were his co-workers, who were his co-workers, let's not overlook that, to have the same mind. And then he also asks an anonymous, genuine yoke fellow to aid these women into right thinking. Now, there's very much here in these three verses to really, really challenge us to change how we are living our lives. Okay. So let's look at every phrase in this passage with hearts open to the Holy Spirit that he will convict us. And let's pray that where we are falling short, we will understand what God desires for us and live our lives in the power and love of the Holy Spirit which he has given us so we can change our hearts, our minds, our desires, and our actions. Lord, hear our prayer now. He begins, the first thing that he talks about is, so my beloved, so my beloved, stand firm in the Lord. So my brethren, beloved and desired. So he starts out saying, therefore, brothers, and this is a very important word, brothers, and it means both men and women in the Greek language. He is addressing these saints in Philippi, the church that he planted, as brothers in Christ Jesus. In fact, for the whole church, the word brother is used five times, but for the whole church, there's three other times when he calls them brothers. There's an intimacy here, and he goes on to say, beloved and desired. You can sense, as in this whole letter, his very strong affection. The word, this first word, beloved, expresses the same kind of love that is God's love, this self-giving love that he has for his people. And so in this way, Paul is showing himself to be a true disciple of Jesus who spoke to Peter and his disciples in the upper room, and it was the basis for the first song we sang after the call to worship. And what did Jesus say? A new commandment I give you, and it's truly new, that you love one another even as I have loved you. It's hard enough to love other people as ourselves, but to love somebody with the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ and be willing to die for another person, for a brother or sister in Christ, that's amazing. But he says, as I have loved you, that you also may love one another, and by this, by this love, 
All men will know that you are my disciples if you have this love for one another. And Paul is saying, I have this love for you. First word out of his mouth to these brothers and sisters, he says, beloved. And then he goes on to say, stand firm in the Lord. It's the only explicit command in this passage. But he goes on to say, my joy and my crown. Now what he's really talking about here is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Because the New Testament talks about crowns that Jesus will give to his faithful disciples when he returns. I'm not going to go into them. I've given you five references in the sermon outline. But the important thing is to remember also earlier in this letter, Paul said, because these brothers, these saints in Philippi were holding out the word of life, that they were seeking to make disciples for Jesus Christ, he said, because of that, uh, I will glory in the day of Christ. So all followers of Jesus, and Paul is a great example, everything we do, no matter what suffering we go through now, is motivated by the future when Jesus comes back because we want to please him and we want to hear, well done thou good and faithful servant. And then he says, so you all must stand firm in the Lord. This word stand firm is used many times, in fact, in the theme verse of this letter, way back in the first chapter, Paul had said this, and now he's just repeating it in some different language. Okay, he's saying... Um, so that I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit and one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And what this first sentence is doing is beautifully illustrating the theme of this letter, which commentators who love to categorize things call it a friendship exhortation. We have both this tremendous love that Paul the church planter has for the congregation, for the saints in Philippi. But at the same time, love that does not exhort and encourage to go above and beyond and become more Christ-like isn't love. So this standing firm in the Lord, it's so important. And a couple more times in the other letters that Paul wrote, he says, be on the alert, standing firm in the faith. He wrote that to the church in Corinth. And then to the church in Rome, he says, who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, each man will stand firm or fall. So we can put these four stand firm commands together because this is in the Lord, okay? It's in the Lord, and all saints must stand firm in the faith, in the Lord, in one spirit to God, the master and father of all. So these stand firms together reveal the Trinity to us, and it's in the Lord. Let's not forget that, okay? Because I think people can easily get discouraged. It's impossible to be a Christian. No person has the strength in himself or herself to obey this command. 
It is only for those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. In the Lord we can obey by grace, by faith, in his love. And then the second part of this passage deals with two women who must be like-minded and a yoke fellow is asked to help them along with all of those whose names are in the book of life. So he addresses these two women. Euodia and Syntyche are urged to be of the same mind. And again, Paul shows no favorites. He uses the same phrase for each one. He says, I am entreating Euodia. Literally, her name means good smell or fragrant. And I am entreating Syntyche. Now, that name means with fate, with fate. So we have fragrant and fate. It's alliterative in English. It wasn't in their language. Now, some commentators have said with fate, her nickname should be Lucky. So we're talking to fragrant and lucky, or Paul is, and he's saying the same to think in the Lord. There's that phrase again. But thinking the same, this runs throughout the letter of Philippians. Let me refresh your memory of what we've seen before. Paul had earlier commanded the entire church to have the same mind in the Lord. And now he's taking that general commandment. This is so much like God and how he deals with us. Yeah, it's a general commandment for everybody, but here's a specific situation. We don't know the details, but he's saying, you two women, it's not just for the whole church. It's also for the two of you. Work this out. Think the same. And he's also, just a little bit later on, Paul had gone on to say, we must have the same mind in the Lord. It's all through Jesus again. And earlier he had said that the mind that we are to have is the mind of Christ Jesus when he agreed to go to the cross, to humble himself to the point of death. This is all tying together now. All these little themes are coming together in one big Truth, He said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. But it's in the Lord. Uh, I don't know. I saw a commentary once. I think some 100 times Paul said about in the Lord or in Christ or in him. Again, no one doing the work of the gospel of the good news of Jesus can succeed unless he or she is in the Lord. In our own strength, we will fail. In him, we can do all things, and we'll come to that in about a month. Now Paul asks his yoke fellow to help these women who strove together with him in the gospel. Again, phrase by phrase, he says, yes, also I am asking thee. He singles out one man in the congregation, and he says, genuine yoke fellow, thou must help these. Now, yoke fellow is in the masculine, and these is in the feminine, meaning these two women. Now, a lot of people have conjectured 
who this yoke fellow is. You know, and I don't want to get too hung on, up on it, but inquiring minds want to know, right? So the church father, uh, Marcus Victorinus, around 350 AD said, oh, it was Epaphroditus. And then J.B. Lightfoot, who wrote a well-respected commentary in 1868, also said it was Epaphroditus. But as I thought about it and searched other commentaries, that doesn't make any sense. This letter was read to the church gathered in Philippi, and when Paul was writing, Epaphroditus was right there in Rome with him. If he was talking to Epaphroditus, he wouldn't have had to put it in the letter because Epaphroditus brought the letter. Now, Gordon Fee has a very imaginative guess as to who it is, and he makes a reasonable case that it might be Luke. Remember, Luke was one of the founders, and in Acts 16, when the church was founded, in the very next chapter, he starts out saying, they, meaning Paul and whomever, went on to the next village. The inference is Luke stayed behind. And then four years later, on Paul's third missionary journey, Luke says, we caught up with them farther east of Philippi in Troas. So Fee conceded that Luke stayed there for four years, discipling and building up this church. Again, Luke was one of the strongest co-workers of Paul. And now we know from Colossians that Luke was with Paul early in his imprisonment in 61 AD. But this was written in 62 AD, so he could have conceivably gone back to Philippi and been ministering in this congregation again. He would be an elder and he could bring about the reconciliation. But you know, at the end of the day, people, his name is not important. What is really important and what matters is that he's called a yoke fellow. He's yoked to Jesus, living his life in faithful obedience to Jesus. And remember what Jesus said in Matthew's gospel. He commanded his followers to take his yoke upon them. So whoever this is, this is someone who has faithfully taken the yoke of Jesus and is living in faithful obedience to Jesus. And now, let's bring it right down to earth where we are right now. What about us? Will we take the yoke of Jesus upon us, willingly and joyfully doing his will? And then he says... Um, who have striven together with me in the gospel. You know, I've heard sermons, maybe you have too in the past, where preachers will get up here and dump all over these women because they were fighting with each other and maybe messing up the church. It doesn't say that anywhere in the text. In fact, Paul calls them his co-workers. Now, I read a paper when I was in seminary, and I've kept the summary of it with me, all these 20 years. And there were 32 named co-workers of Paul in his gospel mission. And these two women were two of them. All he's trying to do is see that a small conflict gets resolved. There's nothing punitive about these two women. They co-labored and suffered and did all of the work with Paul 
to spread the gospel, and he loved them. But now this begs the question, and we need to come to it. What is the gospel? We hear it all the time. What is it? Well, Jesus said that those who are spiritually dead will be enabled to hear his voice. And hearing his voice, they will cross over from death into life. With that, he declares all people naturally, spiritually dead. And Paul picked up on that, and he said in his letter to the Ephesians, which was written a year before this, as to you, like all human beings, you may be in Christ now, but you were once dead in your transgressions and your sins. This people is the bad news. What used to be called the human condition when most of us went to school is just laughed at right now, but the human condition is we are sinners who fall short of pleasing God and are therefore rightly under his judgment. That's part one of the gospel. You can't have good news without realizing there's bad news that has to be overcome. Go back to my very first statement. We're living in a culture where almost all the news is bad because everybody's at each other's throats. We're divided hopelessly. What is the good news? Well, Jesus died once on the cross to take away sins. And he will finally bring salvation when he comes the second time. Put another way, if we die to our sins with Christ on the cross by faith, then we will be given his resurrection life. Okay? It's a gift. It's grace by faith. So let me say this, because this kind of breaks my heart. There's so many people that are looking for miracles for physical problems that they have, and they don't know they need a bigger miracle. People, let me tell you, the greatest miracle, the greatest miracle of all is when a dead spirit comes to life in Jesus by fully surrendering and humble, dependent, obedient faith to him. Life in Jesus, forgiven by the Father in Jesus Christ, and then receiving the Holy Spirit. This is such good news that those of us who have the Holy Spirit, the assurance of forgiveness, and have new life, we can't help but share it. And that's part of the gospel, too. We haven't really received the gospel until we come to this last part, which Paul put in his second letter to the church in Corinth. After receiving forgiveness and life by faith in Jesus, people then become compelled to share this gift of reconciliation with God and the righteousness which Jesus freely gives with other people. Sharing the gospel, the good news. I must also say this. It's never to be intentionally done as an individual thing. Sometimes we'll be alone with a friend or a family member and we get the opportunity to share. 
But as a ministry, as fulfilling the Great Commission, Jesus always sent people out two by two. Paul never went out alone. In fact, in some of the letters as he's addressing, we know he had a team of Paul and Timothy and Silas. It can be three or more people. And coming back now to Yodia and Syntyche, they were a gospel mission team of two people, of two women. Saints will stand firm working together with one mind in the Lord to share the gospel. Then he throws in this interesting little aside and name, and also with Clement. Let me just tell you something from church history you might not be aware of. But there was a Clement who was a bishop in Rome from 88 to 99 AD. Some people think this is that same Clement. If it is, he would have been 27 when this letter was written, just growing up as a disciple in the church in Philippi. But it's very possible that 26 years later, he was appointed bishop over the church in the biggest city in the Roman Empire, the capital of the Roman Empire. So take that for what it's worth. But here's a big one. And the rest of my fellow workers. You see, there's a need to reconcile these two women. In part of gospel ministry to those who are outside the church is when those who are inside the church are helping other people to stand firm and obey this new commandment of Jesus to love each other sacrificially. And doing this is a way to main, by maintaining unity, okay? By bringing about this reconciliation, this is a witness to the world. They'll know we are Christians by our love. I think the greatest witness is to have some people that are tremendously and almost desperately different from each other, loving each other. And the world sees that and says, how come you love each other? And then we can tell them. It's, it's both and, it all works together. So that's why the rest of the saints can be a witness to outsiders. Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane before going to cross, Father, make them to be one in total unity in your love so that the world may know that you sent me. This pagan world will be touched when they see people loving one another who have nothing in common humanly speaking. Stand firm, working together with the same mind, the mind that we want everybody to know Jesus. And then he says, whose names are in the book of life. I'm sure most of you have noticed this phrase as you've read scripture. Let me give you just a quick summary. The first mention of God having a book with names written in it was when Moses was with Yahweh on Mount Sinai. And it was the second time after Moses had broken the Ten Commandments because of the golden calf and idolatry. And Yahweh says, I'm going to wipe them all out and start over again with you, Moses. And Moses said, no, don't do that. Forgive your people. And if you can't forgive these people, then blot my name out of your book. You think Moses is a type of Jesus? 
And then Yahweh says, I will wipe out whatever name I will wipe out. But then he listened to Moses. And then the book of life is specifically mentioned in Psalm 69, when David was being scorned for his love of God's house by wicked, wicked people. And this is a negative occurrence. David says, blot these evil people who hate you and hate me, blot them out of your book of life. And then as you go through the book of Revelation, there's many times where the angel, who may be Jesus, is saying to John, their names will be blotted out. I'll give you a few examples. Um, let's see. It says that power will be given to the beast, and he will have this power over all the people whose names are not in the book of life. Whenever the beast comes along, we better be sure we're in the book of life or we might be toast. And then he goes on to say, those whose names are not in the book of life, who don't love Jesus supremely, who don't know his power and his love, they will marvel at the beast. They'll say, oh, here's the Messiah, now we believe. And they will be fooled because their names are not in the book of life. But the book ends, both the revelation to John, the apocalypse, and to us, by saying the new Jerusalem is only for those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life. Who's in the book of life? People who give their lives fully, fully to doing gospel work in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have their names written in the book of life. In other words, let's surrender to Jesus, let's seek his will, let's do it, let's stand firm in the faith, firm in our work for the Lord. Gospel workers, gospel workers have their names written in the book of life. So putting this all together, God's beloved adopted children must stand firm in their gospel witness and they must show genuine unity in front of a hostile, increasingly pagan world. And this requires that every saint submit his or her personal ambitions and goals so as to join together with other brothers and sisters in the church together, together, in sacrificial service to others. That's what God is looking for, that we give sacrificially on behalf of other people, just as Jesus Christ sacrificially gave himself for us. And then the first step in doing this, let's just share the gospel with people we know. We don't have to go halfway around the world. Let's share with family, friends, and neighbors. Saints, stand firm, working together with the same mind in the gospel so others may know him. So let's wrap up this very short passage. The Apostle Paul commands his beloved brothers to stand firm. Stand firm in the Lord. Don't give up. And then he entreats to women who are fellow workers in the gospel to think the same in the Lord and here's where we really come in. While also requesting that a genuine yoke fellow helps these women who have striven together with him along with all 
whose names are written in the book of life. That's us. As saints, let us stand firm. Stand firm together, having one mind, the mind of Christ, to do his mission. And then, as I said earlier, when Jesus returns, as Paul was sure himself, we will receive crowns from him. What a blessing we'll have if we're faithful now.